The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the WITS Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Siswempo for Welsh, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Wiser. I recently completed a doctorate in international relations at Oxford, and in this podcast I'll be summarizing that work and reflecting on what I hope are some of the contributions that the work makes to the wider field. The thesis is entitled Obedient Rebellion, Nuclear Weapon-Free Zones and Global Nuclear Order, 1967 to 2017. So in a comparative case study of three different nuclear weapon-free zones, the African, Latin American, and South Pacific zones, I draw on archival evidence as well as oral historical evidence to analyze two questions. Why do these zones exist? And then why do they persist? Each of which is a puzzle on its own. Now in this podcast, I'd like to do three things. First, I'll trace the background of nuclear weapon-free zones and try to make the case for why they are an intrinsically interesting area of study in international relations and, in fact, an overlooked area. And second, I'll take you through my argument and the argument that I make for both why these zones exist and then why they persist. I'll then put the argument into practice by looking at one of the cases that I examine in the thesis, which is the African nuclear weapon-free zone. And then finally, I'll end by reflecting on some of the wider implications for theory, for history, and for the discipline of international relations. So what is a nuclear weapon-free zone? In essence, it's a place in the world where there is a legally binding treaty which prevents the use, stockpiling, transportation, implantation, acquisition, or retention of nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapon-free zones are places where states come together to ban the use or even the mere presence of nuclear weapons in a given territory. And since the middle of the 20th century, they've spread across half the world's territory, and today they cover over 100 countries, encompass 39% of the human population, and they span the entire southern hemisphere. And also, interestingly, they don't just take place over states, but there are nuclear weapon-free zones governing all of outer space. There are nuclear weapon-free zones governing the seabed. And there are also nuclear weapon-free zones in states themselves. So, for example, Mongolia is a nuclear weapon-free zone. So these zones are also quite interesting creatures within international relations in that they don't tend to form over stereotypical territorial divides. But curiously, international relations theory has failed to appreciate the profundity of the story, both for the ways that it challenges conceptions of the state, but also because of the existential importance of nuclear non-proliferation. And so the thesis is really an attempt to bring nuclear weapon-free zones to the forefront of questions of nuclear security by asking how has nuclear non-proliferation actually been successful in the global south? And in what ways can theoretical lessons be learnt from this multilateral cooperation? So let me begin by addressing the background to nuclear weapon-free zones, explain what they are and why they're important. At a summit in Cairo on the 11th of April 1996, then-Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak 
grinned before a phalanx of international dignitaries gathered to celebrate the birth of the long-awaited African Nuclear Weapon-Free Zone Treaty. To Mubarak's left stood Ethiopian Foreign Minister Seyum Misfin, and to his right was Amr Musa, Egypt's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Behind them shone a bright white slogan, emblazoned in three different languages against an emerald green background, Africa free of nuclear weapons. And on that day, 47 of Africa's then 53 states signed what became affectionately called the Treaty of Pelindaba. The name Pelindaba was intentionally ironic. It was the name of South Africa's secret nuclear research facility, concealed among the jagged Machalisberg Mountains to the west of Pretoria, which housed apartheid South Africa's nuclear weapons program. Now the term Pelindaba, which is a portmanteau of Pela Indaba, which means end the story in Isizulu and Isthosa, was for the apartheid government about ending the story by generating an unassailable military supremacy in Africa. But the term took on a new meaning as African states reappropriated it to mean ending the story of nuclear weapons on the continent. But far from ending the story, the Treaty of Pelindaba formed part of a vast transcontinental story that began four decades earlier and persists into the present. Having traced the background to nuclear weapon-free zones, I'll now move on to the second part of this podcast, which is to outline the argument that I make in response to the two questions that I pose. So first, I look at what are the events that trigger nuclear weapon-free zones and cause them to be prioritized within their regions. And here I develop the notion of an external nuclear intervention. An external nuclear intervention is an intervention by an external nuclear power into a territory using nuclear weapons or bringing nuclear weapons into that territory or testing nuclear weapons in that territory against the consent of the states in that territory. So, for example, when France tested nuclear weapons in the Sahara in Africa against the will of newly decolonizing states within that territory, that was an external nuclear intervention. So these interventions act as triggers, but there is an underlying set of circumstances which also needs to be taken into account. And this is where the title of my thesis comes from, which is Obedient Rebellion. I claim that within these territories that create nuclear weapon-free zones, there's an inherent tension On the one hand, there's a sense in which these states want to become part of global nuclear order. They want to partake as good citizens in the institutions, the rules, and the norms that frame global nuclear order. So there's this impulse for obedience, as I call it, on the one hand. But this is tempered by the opposite impulse, which is an impulse for rebellion, And this is a sense in which these states see the global nuclear order as fundamentally unfair, see the global nuclear order as iterating and instantiating a form of nuclear apartheid where, on the one hand, certain states are permitted to acquire nuclear weapons and nuclear power even, and other states are subordinated into positions where 
a lack of this nuclear ambition is locked in. And this is also enmeshed with colonial solidarities in the third world, which build around decolonization and denuclearization. And these two processes, denuclearization and decolonization, intertwine at the same historical moment, and therefore the rhetoric of each becomes entangled. And so you also have this contending impulse within these states of rebellion against nuclear order. And so cheek by jowl, you have these two contending impulses, which are incoherent. And it's ironically the incoherence of these impulses which produces nuclear weapon-free zones. And my argument is that nuclear weapon-free zones become venues by which these incoherencies um, and these multivalent impulses are ultimately accommodated. And so nuclear weapon-free zones serve both to reinforce a sense of good nuclear citizenship, but at the same time, they also come to represent a a semi-rejection of that order and a sense in which nuclear non-proliferation happens from below rather than from above. Now, this accounts both for why the zones come into being, but obedient rebellion also plays a role when the zone does come into being in, in terms of helping the zone to persist. So that once they come into being, more and more states realize that nuclear weapon-free zones can mediate this tension that they feel between an antagonistic relationship towards global nuclear order and a more accommodating relationship. So that's the argument in a nutshell. And let me move on to the third part of this podcast, which is trying to put the argument into practice. So my argument begins with a trigger, which is an external nuclear intervention. And in Africa, we see this. And the external intervention is a set of nuclear tests which are initiated by France in the Sahara Desert, some of which take place in what are French colonies at the time, and some of which take place in Algeria, which is struggling for independence at the time as well. And this external nuclear intervention, this nuclear testing, has a profound impact on decolonizing African states in ways that I think have been uh, forgotten by historical memory. And so what I do is I trace some of the rhetoric of these newly decolonizing states around French nuclear testing and trace how that becomes a key part of African diplomacy in the latter part of the 20th century. So just for some examples, um, Nkrumah's Ghana becomes absolutely obsessed with the question of French nuclear tests, and it becomes one of Nkrumah's priorities, perhaps his apex foreign policy priority. He says, and I quote, there are two swords of Damocles hanging over the continent and we must remove them. They are the nuclear tests in the Sahara by the French government and the apartheid policy of the government of the Union of South Africa. African states are absolutely incensed Various African states take diplomatic measures against France. At the United Nations General Assembly, we see the Assembly used as a venue for an unprecedented, coordinated African assault on French nuclear tests and linking this question to the question of of denuclearization and decolonization. So, for example, uh, Wachuku Jaja 
the first representative to the United Nations um, of Nigeria in his maiden speech says, we put up the sign, please do not touch, take your rockets to your own homes, test your atom bombs in your own kitchens, do not bring them into our continent. This is why we are unanimous in opposing France's tests in the Sahara Desert. France carry out these explosions in the Pyrenees and the Alps and on the farms of France. It is all right with us if France wants to bomb itself. And various other representatives from Sudan, later from Algeria, from Ethiopia, and of course from Ghana reiterate these sentiments at the General Assembly. And it's perhaps the first time you see a kind of coordinated African action on the international stage. But recognize as well that while these interventions are couched in the language of an anti-imperial solidarity, they continue to take place within the institutional ambit of global nuclear order. In fact, these speeches are taking place right within the United Nations General Assembly. And so you have this tension in which there's a sense in which, on the one hand, African states are deeply unsympathetic towards global nuclear order, but the only way that they can voice this antagonism is through the institutions of global nu nuclear order itself. And this pattern plays out throughout the decades in, in very interesting ways in Africa. Of course, South Africa becomes a fly in the ointment because as African states are coalescing around a denuclearization agenda, the apartheid government is secretly pursuing a nuclear weapons program. So the thesis also traces the genesis and the evolution of South Africa's nuclear program. But then eventually the decision by South Africa to come round to a four decades long African argument about denuclearization. And finally, when those two processes come together in the early to mid 1990s, South Africa finally joins its African counterparts in supporting denuclearization and then actually becomes quite a fierce proponent of the African nuclear weapon free zone. But even as it's doing this, even as it's rejoining the non-proliferation treaty, even as it's becoming a good nuclear citizen, there is always this latent critique in South Africa as in other states about the unfairness of the regime and the need for it to change. So that's one example. And of course, in the thesis, I go into a lot more depth into the archives, into the rhetoric of various nuclear decision makers across the continent and try to trace this tension between obedience and rebellion in the realm of nuclear politics. So finally, I'll come to some of the contributions that I hope this work makes to the wider field. Theoretically, first, the concept of obedient rebellion is one that I think could have currency in various other contexts in international relations theory, but also in other post-colonial uh, appraisals of international politics or even domestic politics. Then there are a number of historical contributions in the thesis from reinterpreting the importance of the Cuban Missile Crisis, to looking at French nuclear tests, to reprioritizing the nuclear question in African decolonization and the history of African decolonization. And of course, the same is, is true in the South Pacific, which I also touch on in the thesis. 
And finally, I think the thesis reinscribes the importance of the global south in the realm of nuclear non-proliferation and in global nuclear politics, a realm in which it's often marginalized and ignored. As regards questions of existential importance, the nuclear has often played second fiddle to the environmental or even the biological. But this thesis calls on us to continue to regard the nuclear as of fundamental importance to not only the preservation of human life, but our understanding of international politics. <laughs>